Hello and welcome to the Atmosphere Podcast. Today's guest is Karen Burley. Karen is a trained social worker who now finds herself in the roles of life coach, Enneagram teacher, and paradigm shifter. Karen is also the co-host of the successful Enneagram Typecast podcast. In this episode, Karen and I explore the significant shift in her thinking and approach during her early years as a social worker, which eventually led her to being a coach and Enneagram teacher. In our conversation, Karen also explains what the Enneagram is, how it can be utilized, as well as its strengths and potential limitations. This episode was particularly informative for me, and I hope you all get as much knowledge and value as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Karen Burley. Hey, Karen. How are you doing today? (laughs) I'm doing really well. I'm so happy to be here with you. Likewise, Karen, thank you for doing this. And I'm looking forward to our chat. And for me, perhaps unlike most of my other episodes, uh, to really be a student here, at least for a part of it, um, where uh, I'm super curious to know more about uh, your trajectory into what you're doing now uh, and what it is that you're doing now. So um, what what would you say it is that you, you do now? How, how would you bill yourself, let's say? Yeah, I call, I bill myself as a life coach, an Enneagram teacher. I'm a podcast co-host like yourself, although <laughs> you're, full, you're a full host. Um, and I call myself both a facilitator of transformation and a paradigm shifter. Those are some phrases I'm working with <laughs> in terms of how I bill myself. But essentially, I work with clients and I work uh, with the Enneagram. Fantastic. Okay, so a lot there to unpack already. So this is going to be great. Um, maybe we could start with uh, an explanation of what is the Enneagram? Does that, does that sound okay to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is so much. It's, there's a moment right now where the Enneagram is kind of exploding. Uh, people may have heard the word and many people are like, what is that? And some people are like, oh, yeah, I got told I was this number. And it is very confusing what it really is. Um, but I've been now studying it for about five years uh, and just love it. So I'm happy to talk about it here. Wonderful. Um, Yeah. So the Enneagram literally means nine-sided figure. Um, And there is this funny shape. It has a circle, it has a triangle, and then there's some other lines in the middle there. Um, And the Enneagram of personality, as people might think of it, uh, or also called the Enneagram of process, is this shape. But what it symbolizes is both an esoteric teaching, you know, there's a, a spiritual component of the Enneagram, um, as well as a psychological and somatic component. And so the nine sides of the figure symbolize nine discrete personality types or ego type structures and really help us see our own lens on the world 
So we as humans are taking in millions of bits of information every second, and we cannot possibly process all of that. So we delete, distort, and filter the information that comes in. And we do that according to the Enneagram theory um, in accordance with our dominant type, uh, because our dominant type helps us see the world in a certain way that we believe is going to keep us safe and protect us. So we're really, when we're talking about Enneagram types, it's a lot of things. There's a lot of different pieces to the system, but essentially it's helping us see what we, what information we prioritize, what protective mechanisms we need, feel we need the most because of a core vulnerability that we're protecting ourselves against. Mm, okay. So there's nine, if, so let's just see if I'm following here. There's nine, can we say like personality types? I'm kind of borrowing from like the big five language, but so there's, yeah. there's so, and we would all have a predominant one, which to me hints at the fact that we have the other parts as well. Am, am I with you so far here? Absolutely. Great. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So how does, how does one get to understand which personality type one is? Is there like a Myers-Briggs type assessment or how does one do that? Yeah, there are absolutely assessments. I always, always caution um, not to only go on your test results because as we know, tests are self-report and we may or may not know what our unconscious mind is up to. I think those um, with even when we have a decent amount of self-awareness, there are reasons why we choose to see ourselves in a certain way. Um, and it can be a really long process. So some people take a test and they most tests will show you like your top three um, and then give you more of an explanation. I recommend if you're curious about the system, reading brief descriptions of all the types and seeing if you can eliminate certain ones that are very clearly not how you see the world in a dominant way. And then part of what I do is I have actually been trained to conduct typing interviews. So I ask questions and listen and I'm listening for language, I'm looking at body language, I'm listening for themes. And so that's another way to start finding type, but it really is an ongoing process and a jumping off point for self-observation. So what I love about the Enneagram is that it's basically offering this framework and then saying, hey, what does it feel like in you? How do you develop the an inner observer, which gets talk, talked about in a lot of therapeutic modalities um, and spiritual traditions of like this part of ourselves that can just witness ourselves. And as we develop that, we can start to have more neutrality when it comes to seeing our habits and our patterns and our behaviors. And until we do that, um, I think a lot of people out there are mistyped or maybe don't have the patience to find their type where they see a thing on Instagram and they're like, that's me. It must be this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes a certain level of presence to really be able to see ourselves. Um, but I know I found my type, for example, my therapist brought it into our session and start started sharing, you know, bits of a few types. And when I found my dominant one, it like felt like a punch to the gut. I was like, oh, this is what's going on in me. Oh, interesting. So you, okay, so first of all, is your own personal therapy sort of 
guided or it has the structure of the Enneagram sort of way of conceptualizing a person or I'm not sure what you meant by your therapist brought it in. Yeah. Well, I can tell you the story. Um, It was near the end of my grad school training. I was getting my master's in social work. And one of my very fun patterns is that as soon as I'm about to step into the world and do anything, I um, have experienced some pretty major depressive episodes. So I started seeing a wonderful therapist and who's also a social worker. Um, and she very eclectic, you know, used a, used a number of modalities, um, but had just been interested in the Enneagram herself. And I was actually listening to a podcast on my drive to my session. <laughs> and the host was interviewing someone who was like, oh, the Enneagram, I love it. I use it with my therapist. It's so helpful. So I, of course, pause the episode, go to therapy. Two minutes into session, my therapist is like, hey, there's this tool. It's called the Enneagram. Are you with, interested? With, with no prompting from you, like, hey, I heard this podcast, just a coincidence. No, I, and I love synchronicity. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, yes. And actually, my my former sister-in-law had, was, is a therapist and had mentioned it a couple years prior. I had t- taken a look, didn't really resonate with it. It didn't draw me in, and I kind of forgot about it. Um, I believe the Enneagram finds you when you're ready for it. That's yeah. kind of <laughs> how I like to think about it. And so, boom, it was there. And she started with a certain type that a lot of therapists and social workers are more of this really nurturing care caregiving type and as she read some adjectives I was like yeah a lot of that you know is like me maybe two-thirds I was like someone told me I was this other number like I don't know she read me some adjectives about that number and I was like yeah maybe like half of that fits and I started being like oh this is just gonna be another thing that I don't really learn a lot about myself through like you know I had done the Myers-Briggs in college and was like well I'm in the middle on a couple of them I don't know and it hadn't been that useful so I start to feel this kind of like preemptive disappointment which is also now I know characteristic of my type and then she reads she reads the one that really hit me and it was like this visceral experience for me, this an emotional experience of like, oh my gosh, this is what people see when they see me. And I've always thought there was something wrong with me or something and no one would tell me what it was. They were like, you're fine. You're so nice. You're so warm and kind and accepting. But there's a lot going on underneath the surface that I never had language for because I didn't really know what my internal experience fully was. I was also, you know, in my mid-20s, so was very much in exploratory mode. And I just was like, oh my gosh, I think this thing, this can help me. So for me, it was in that setting where I had shown up in order to look more deeply at myself. We had already built trust. We were probably a few sessions in at this point. Um, And then I started hearing some language that was like, oh, I think that's what I'm doing, <laughs> was it just opened up a lot for me. That's, uh, yeah, I, I keep hearing in your language now how maybe you were having feelings and maybe there was some ambiguity about them or confusion even, and this thing put words in a way that you could understand it or express it more. Am I, am I getting that? right? Is that kind of how your experience felt for you? 
Yeah, my confusion is such a good word. It's it's like that was my predominant experience of life, I would say, um, up till that point is I was, I loved people. I was always interested in them. But when it came to myself, I just felt so confused. Um, and I would look to other people to tell me what I was like or how they experienced me or who I was. And then I wouldn't really believe them. <laughs> and I think there's something important there of like, what were the things you wouldn't believe? I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's yeah. very interesting. What, 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 yeah. What was that about? I mean, I think I, as an existential therapist, you probably see this a lot, but there's kind of this surface level of our humanness of, you know, oh, I like to do X, Y, and Z. I, I'm people kind of see me as this person, but then there's this underlayer of like, who am I really? Or yeah. like, what is going on yeah. with the world? That's where my, and that's what, where my, that's where my clan lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then even deeper, like, what am I supposed to be doing here? Why are we doing all this ridiculous seeming stuff that makes no sense to me? And then feeling like, well, there must be something I don't get because I don't feel like I'm doing life very well. Mm. Um, and that was ultimately what led to my breakdowns was like, what am I going to do in this world? How am I going to like have a job or take care of these things that I'm supposed to care about when I don't know that I care about them? And what's the point? Well, that's um, heavy, Karen. <laughs> was this after graduation with after you had your social work degree? It was kind of a period leading up to that. And then, you know, William, you had the privilege of seeing me in the midst of, of one of these cycles after grad school, working as a, as a therapist with really intense um, population with a lot of trauma. And I remember, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the one to bring it up because it's up to you to express that. But I remember uh, one day in particular when you walked into my office so for people that don't know, obviously, Karen and I worked together at an agency a handful of years ago. Yeah. And, it was heavy. and I and I'll say, I mean, I was so grateful to have you there because I felt like you were able to hold the complexity of like, yeah, there's a lot that we're mm -hmm. holding. There's a lot that we're holding with our clients, but also within ourselves. And I think um, the side of myself that I had learned how to show and we all do this, we kind of have this image that we project or this idealized self that we try to be was really pleasant. You know, I'm a very friendly person. I really do care about people a lot. But then underneath, it was like, I didn't know how to fully care about myself. I didn't know how to think that what I brought to the table was important and how to find a place in the world, essentially. That is, it's heavy. You know what I'm struck by, Karen, right now is how consistent what you're expressing and what you found language for through the Enneagram that we, as, you know, existential therapists sort of swim in those waters and we don't, I, well, I don't use the language of the Enneagram because I don't, I don't, I, I'm not familiar with it. But it's it's these it's giving language to these same themes. Who the hell am I? Why am I? Why is it this versus that? Like what? We just get ejected into the world and now we have to make something of it. Oh my god! 
So yeah, having the language is so important. And, and with the Enneagram, there's not only language, and I won't say that it's going to give anybody the answers to those questions, because that certainly is an inside job to a degree. I appreciate you saying that. That's, that's, that's real. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it can really help us point to some things. Like you said, we don't have a language for, but I, I mean, for me, through grad school and through working with so many people who have such wonderful takes on the human experience, it all felt similar, right? We find this language because it is the core of something that humans grapple with. And I couldn't ever really land on a theory because I was like, isn't that saying the same thing? Sure, someone paid to manualize this modality and that's valuable. But personally, I, I just couldn't hold my attention. And when I found the Enneagram and if I found my type first was kind of where I entered. And then I was like, well, wait, if this is what's going on for me, what's going on for other people? And how is it similar and how is it different? And starting to see, you know, my partner has a different style and a different way of seeing the world. And my sister were even the core, the same core Enneagram type, but there are, there's all these complexities when it comes to there's wings and there's these resource points. Um, oh, excuse me. There's these instinctual variants we call them. And even those distinctions like make a difference in how we see the world and then our life experience um, even someone who grew up in the same family certain had a, certainly had a different experience of our parents and birth order and you know all these things make up a person so it's not to uh, say that the Enneagram is everything by any means but to start to see where is my attention going when I'm not even aware that it's going in that direction what are the places where I continually over my life get stuck again and again when I spiral and, and go out of them and maybe I'm in growing and feel like, oh, great, I resolved a layer of something. Inevitably, I come back to a deeper layer of that similar thing. And the Enneagram can start to point to how that path and that experience is pretty different um, for different people, as I'm sure you've seen in your clients, even though there is a core nugget of that human stuff, there's a different angle that each of us takes on it. Yeah, fantastic, um, Karen. Uh, I appreciate the explanation. And I, I also appreciate for those folks that know me in the existential circles, I'm always the one that says, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid or don't go 100% on one thing. And you know, I'm, I'm the one that's more likely to advocate for like, well, this feels like a CBT intervention might be more fruitful than, you know, a deep exploration about, you know, what does it mean to be in, on earth or whatever. Um, so I appreciate that w w if, if I'm following you here and you correct me if I'm wrong, what this can give us is a decrease in the ambiguity of being alive, of the what the hell is this thing I'm doing called my life and it, and it gives you like a some sort of a, at least guidance towards something oh I'm this type or yeah and I'm not alone there are many I'm people not alone. who see things this way and 
who I can learn from based on how they've navigated with it. And then even deeper than that, if we're looking at what the Enneagram is all about, they're saying, this is exactly who you're not. This is a place your ego gets stuck and decides you have to be that isn't actually all of you. And you so keenly noticed without me having to say, we have all of these energies in us. And what happens with the our Enneagram type is we fixate on one and we, we kind of um, become rigid around it and start to say, this is who I am. This is why I do what I do. And that, that there's, that's kind of a first step is to actually see the pattern that I, do, I am doing specific things for specific reasons. And then the work becomes to not identify with that as who you truly are. And to actually say, even though my type would have me believe that I have to show up in the world in this way and I can't ever be anything else or else I'm not safe, th then I can say, you know, but that's just my type. I actually have so much more to me than that, that hasn't really been explored. And also there's permission here to notice that part, those other parts probably are underdeveloped. You know, I think I really love parts work and- I was just thinking of Richard Shorts as you were talking, this is very parts worky feeling, yeah. Yeah, and there's, you know, with the Enneagram, it's, uh, I haven't deeply studied IFS, although I, I love what I know of it. Um, but with the Enneagram, it really is like this one part is running the show. Um, it is where I feel comfortable. It's where I've developed these neural pathways that are going to trigger this thing again and again and again. And if I'm going to develop other parts of myself, I first have to have compassion for the fact that they haven't developed that much already. They might feel like they're five years old, 15 years old, 25 years old even. And you know, usually younger, <laughs> usually mm -hmm, yeah. this happens pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And to be like, oh my gosh, in service of, of my belief that I had to be this one way, I decided I absolutely could not be this other way. And if I'm going to allow that part of myself to be here so I can be really free and liberated to be like whoever I want to be in this moment or whoever I really am in all the ways, I have to go back and kind of be gentle with the nurturing component of like, I've got to learn how to, how to do these things. Wonderful. So it's interesting because a lot of what you're describing is, so if somebody had to, you know, ask me like, okay, dude, give me what you do in two or three bullet points. What the hell is your type of therapy? I would say to get the person to understand themselves more deeply gaining deeper degrees of awareness of themselves and then utilizing their freedom to see if they can enact changes or if it's safer to stay exactly as they are. So it's always about deeper degrees of awareness. And I think what you're describing is something quite similar. I have to, I have to say one thing that I was a bit maybe apprehensive about is that I worry if there's too much rigidity in the placement of like, I'm a nine or I'm a six. But what you're saying is the process of a deeper degree of awareness 
can allow you to integrate all of this. So I guess my question is, is it possible? Like I hear you, I've heard you say in podcasts, I lead with a nine. Yeah. And then thinking, I wonder what that means. Is it possible that in your process of just living and understanding yourself more deeply that that changes? Or is That's that... Such- so is there a, a, a static sort of feeling in the way the whole Enneagram world is devised? That's such a great question. And I intentionally use that language. I lead with a nine instead of I am a nine because it's ah. so easy for us to get stuck of like, this is just how I am. And then, you know, exactly. We're and to, that's my fear, right? Right. And we're prone to then use that as an excuse for certain things or believe that we can't change. And when you were saying how you do your work, what I loved about that and is that through transitioning from therapy into coaching and trying to understand, because what I do is extremely therapeutic and yet it is not therapy, but the real intention of my work too is to help people be at choice where it's not about making changes if those, if you don't need to make changes or it's not safe for you to make those changes or it's not comfortable or there's other things that need to be addressed first before you can do that it's not like great I know my type now I have to do x y and z it's like now I have more of a sense of what's going on and more of a real chance to choose whether I want to keep doing it or not but to your other question it is you know I love the Enneagram because it's so dynamic and because it's not saying if you are this type, you are stuck doing the same things forever. And yet it is saying that I do believe that our dominant type doesn't change, but we do learn to hold it more loosely. And there's also this whole element of the teaching that is kind of inherently spiritual, which I was very skeptical of for a while. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know that we can do this work without that component. So that's just my take on it. But there's this recognition that even the distorted behaviors, even the things that get us all out of whack and all stuck are pointing at some sort of essential quality that each of the types embody and just kind of have more natural access to. So as we do the work, it's less that we're kind of wreaking havoc on our relationships and making the same life decisions over and over again. And more that we're in touch with, they call them like the higher qualities. There's like the higher qualities of the head center and of the heart center. And we start to really access and embody these things. And other people can look to us and be like, whoa, you're extremely grounded or you're extremely attuned to like all of how things are just working even though they're also really messy and screwed up or you're really attuned to like how we can do a lot, but ultimately we're not in charge of everything. And like, there are these qualities that the types point to. So even though we are pretty set in our type and there are teachers who have been teaching for 40 years who are like, yeah, my core type is still showing up. Also, they're gaining more access to the higher sides of the type and also we're learning to embody more of all of the types. But I don't think it goes away. I think it's pretty solidified in terms of like the human journey and the path that we're on is going to have recurring themes and a recurring sense of like these dominant ideas. 
So I've also heard that this is what gets in the way of people are on a spiritual path. Like it's hard. You can't really be enlightened and stuck in a personality at the same time. And yet you need some sort of ego to be alive and a human being. Yeah. And the idea of, of, of stuck in a personality, there's, I mean, I, I get a sense that what, what we all do, there's actually some similar, a lot of similarities, but just different languages. I mean, as you were talking, you know, it made me even think of like Freud and ids and superego and ego, and obviously the work of Richard Schwartz, um, the tradition of the existentialists, um, we're not blank slates. I mean, the big five personality trait work hints at the same thing. There is a core of what we are that isn't really that shiftable. But within that anchor, there is a lot of room for movement. Yeah, and maybe there's no problem with being, you know, who we are. With right, being, like there was a whole study. Dr. David Daniels was one of the founders of the Narrative Enneagram, which is where I did the majority of my training, and he worked really hard to see if there was a way to validate this stuff through psychology and science, and found in one of his studies these nine distinct temperaments in babies and infants. And they really kind of map to the nine types. And we've seen other, you know, like you're mentioning, different systems basically say you're kind of wired in a certain way. Right. And you're predisposed to a certain thing. That doesn't mean you don't have, you know, free will to make choices and things like that. But it does mean that you're going to be more attuned to certain things and more sensitive to certain things. And that's really good to know about yourself. And we can actually stop thinking that there's a problem with that or that whatever mm -hmm, our family mm -hmm. culture or a bit larger culture tells us we're supposed to be, if that's not matching how you're experiencing the world, it's actually of so much value as you know therapists know to really be who you are and to stop judging yourself and to be, have compassion for why you're that way and what amazing, beautiful qualities you might be able to bring forth because of exactly who you are. Well stated. And, and, and I, it's interesting because while I agree with what you're saying, I still worry and not because of the Enneagram, like just as a, as a feature of us humans, when somebody says to us, oh, it's this then I always worry that that may limit us because then it anchors us to, oh, it's because I'm this. So therefore I couldn't possibly be that, <laughs> right? I think I have the same struggle when I, as I'm trying to figure out who I, who I work with and how I want to teach this system, I think a blanket pop psychology version, which is very much out there right now. It is, and that's what really, I can run into, yeah. Yeah, it really misses the point, and it's, and it's um, part of my inner work, really, to be like, yeah, also that's part of this whole human thing is people are going to take this concept and make it a certain thing that I don't believe it is, and I can't control that whole narrative. <laughs> I, I hear I, you, but I can sit with individual clients or, you know, small groups of people or folks who are drawn to the work I do because of how I do it and 
hopefully help them see more in themselves than the limiting language or the automatic patterns that as humans, we're all going to do, which is being like, well, I'm a this, so therefore, and I get to do my own work to be like, okay, I can watch you fall into that. And then can I gently guide you to see more of yourself? Wonderfully said. I, I, I'm just thinking right now how you and I both work or we have a, 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 an orientation that is somewhat easy to caricature. You know, in my circles, it's like, oh, they, they, they wear black, they listen to The Cure, and they talk about death. It's like, no, it's, it's well, so much yes, more complex. But, also- <laughs> but there is, but there is maybe, you know, we do talk about death in the context of how do we make our lives matter and understanding that we're finite and that we're not here forever. And and that has a great capacity to integrate spirituality, religion, atheism. I mean, in my camp, you know, the, like the premier existentialist was Soren Kierkegaard, who was a, a, a devout believer. But some of the heaviest hitters are atheists. Um, yeah. and, and I'm interested because from, from what I was able to gather the 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 whole enneagram world kind of well i shouldn't make the assumption i read that there was a bolivian kind of shaman type guy whose name i can't remember and then a chilean guy claudio naranjo who was a very well respected psychiatrist who they both recently died yeah. um what is the relationship between the enneagram and spirituality and religion, and I'm purposely breaking those into three because I don't want to lump spirituality and religion as one thing because it isn't. But what is the relationship with those three? Yeah, it's such a good question, and I think as, as I started, you know, I'm I'm Jewish and I've I'm fairly secular, and you know, probably fell more into atheism camp in my in my uh, adolescent and and teen and twenty years, and now I'm kind of like, oh man. I think I believe in this spirituality stuff, um, and which kind of took me by surprise a little bit. But, but I can, was, can you tell me what you mean by that for you? Like to for you to say I'm I am spiritual. What does that mean? Because it sounds like you're not religious, right? Yeah, I have found the deeper I go with my own work and the deeper I see my own patterns and what it prevents me from seeing. Um, that I think I really believe we're all connected. I really believe that there um, are, I I don't know, I can fall into like energy language, which I know is kind of uh, not specific enough for many, many atheists or whatever, but I'm not really trying to convince anyone. But just for myself, starting to recognize that I am part of a whole in some way Mm -hmm. and that how I show up even if my language isn't that different, like how I show up kind of energetically does have a ripple effect and an impact on both people that I'm directly in contact with. And I, I believe like the larger collective, like as I find more freedom within myself and support my clients to do that, I have come to genuinely believe that that supports a shift in humanity as a whole. So that's part of how my spirituality shows up, I guess. Which doesn't necessarily require the existence of an omnipotent, all-present person, thing, entity in the sky. Yeah, I don't, 
they, I, I never loved God language. Um, and I still don't, but I'm more comfortable with it when I see it, um, connected to the concepts that I'm understanding. And, you know, I prefer the idea of, of the divine or love or the flow or whatever it is. Um, something less rigid, but that still taps into this what seems to be an innate human need. I mean, there's never been a culture that doesn't have some idea of, I guess we could say in the most general ways, the transcendent. Yeah. Or what Kirk Schneider, which is one of our predominant sort of folks in the existential contemporary scene, the, tapping into the sense of awe. Yeah. And to, to look to people who are not saying they're enlightened, but who are these like teachers, um, like how much they're saying similar things and it doesn't feel like they have an agenda for saying them that way. Um, I, I don't want to be sold anything and I'm not like a huge follower of like Eckhart Tolle or anything, but like I've heard some of his stuff and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it seems kind of like you have no reason to say this other than it feels true to you. And it kind of makes sense to people, you know? I like I like what you're saying. You're you're bordering on the controversial now, just yeah. straight out calling them out by name. But I appreciate that. Um, there was I'm a guy working on that. I'm working on uh, being more open with the things that I am starting to believe that are controversial. Good for I, you, Karen. I think that's great. I mean, because well, we every time we speak in any kind of format that's beyond just having a conversation in our living rooms, we run the risk of somebody saying, "What an idiot." Or, good God, what a moronic statement. Okay, then, then for you it is. For me it is not. And, and I love that you're doing it. What happened? I want to hear about that sigh. Oh, it's just big work for me. I think um, yeah. as I've been on my own podcast, I've been working through it some of like, yeah. oh, some people are not going to agree with me. And some people are going to think that what I say is garbage. And then trying to be like, and those people aren't going to seek me out and can that be okay? That's just fine. I don't need to, I, I really just don't want to sell anything to anybody that they're not buying, you know? I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to hear of the journey that you're on. And I'm happy to hear about how much this means to you. And at the same time, you're not trying to push it as the only thing that's available to see your life. Yeah. That gets dangerous real quick as you're talking about. Straight I think, up. Absolutely. Like learning and learning also to um, appreciate my own skepticism. I think for a while on this journey and even at the very beginning, I remember being like, I wish I could just believe something like that would be so much easier. And then as I'm kind of being like, oh my, my gosh, I, I really do believe something to recognize there's a place for the skepticism and anything that tells you not to question it, I'm super skeptical of that. <laughs> I think that's great. And, and, and paradoxically, that's one thing that we should never question, that we should always be skeptical, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and yeah, I think that's, that's fantastic and, and helpful for side, the clients. Right. And the other side of that paradox is that at a certain point, can you own that you don't know and you can't know? And can you allow someone's ideas to move through you and see what happens without needing to know mentally all of it? And I think that's where the spiritual side for me takes takes 
a really significant role of saying, well, I don't even have to know if I believe it, but am I willing to try something on as long as it's not violating, you know, my, my code of ethics or, or whatever, I'm, I'm not harming anyone. Um, can I give it a go? And can I offer whether it's a little prayer or a meditation that kind of pushes my limits a little bit because I can't possibly prove if it's true or not. And the more I've allowed myself to both have my skepticism and suspend my skepticism in this paradox, I start to notice, whoa, there are certain ways of letting go of my need to know that are actually really helpful and bring less stress and actually bring you know, in funny and amazing and amusing synchronistic ways, it's like the more I try to market, I'd never get any clients. And when I do some inner work and I like work on opening my heart to receiving and like doing some of these practices, people find me. And, you know, I can't prove that, but it's fun and it's interesting and I'm willing to entertain it because it's not hurting anybody and it's fun for me. So that's where I'm kind of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm hearing a real emotional and intellectual openness in, in you. Um, it's funny, as you were talking, I was thinking back to that day when you came into my office and how different you sound, Karen. Um, yeah. it's you're you're in such a different space. And I know it was years ago, but, but still, it's, it's very noticeable. I'm curious to know how much this Enneagram framework has helped you navigate this letting go of sort of rigid patterns and ways of thinking into this sort of openness that you're expressing now? Oh, a lot. I mean, it, I think it's also opened the doors for me to explore other things. So it's not like just the Enneagram, only the Enneagram, but really unlike some of the other kind of like new agey spiritual stuff, it does have this framework and it does have this grounding in psychology that I already understand that language. Mm -hmm. And so I had been working with it on my, you know, with my therapist a bit and on my own, just kind of reading what I could find and listening to podcasts. And um, eventually I, I found, I, w I was disappointed. I think I was saying that there was a really strong, like, Christian leaning when I started digging into the Enneagram mm, mm -hmm, yeah a lot of Christ language and a lot of like youth group like being like oh we learned this in my youth group or oh this is how I'm closer to Jesus and I was like ooh, I wasn't expecting that <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get the education um but it does I mean there are roots in like Christian mysticism as well which we all know your answer about religion like religion has very little to do with spirituality oftentimes. And I don't know much about the teachings of Jesus, but I was, I understand it. He told everyone not to build a church around him. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so I love your, so, the, the one page PDF of <laughs> Karen's knowledge of religion. That's a good one. <laughs> the main thing Jesus said. Uh, don't build a church around me. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then it's like I've learned, I've met through this work some incredible people who do lean on Christian faith and also understand the same things about the Enneagram that I do, and it doesn't get in the way. And they 
are actively shifting things in their religious communities. And I'm like, great, that's not my work in the world, but I'm glad someone is doing that. How fascinating that your the waters you swim in, in this thing and, and, and the ones I do, I, I can't think off the top of my head, many other sort of modalities or philosophies that hold space for a secular and a religious version. Cause in existentialism, there's really a toe to toe sort of thing with the, the agnostic atheist movement and the religious one. And it, yeah. and they're all within the same structure. And I love that. I mean, I think um, the the fact that there's so much overlap to me just shows that there's something deeper and it doesn't matter if you classify it as as this spiritual experience or as, you know, the chaos of the universe or whatever. It's there's something. And um, yeah, I mean, I've found a lot of freedom actually in trying to more overtly own my take um, on spirituality and, and, yeah. act- and maybe even preferring working with folks who are open to that, which I would never have dared do as a therapist. And I still don't ever put that on, on people, but I'm just noticing as I'm, I'm still newer in this of like, Oh, who do I work with? And I don't know, I, I imagine it will evolve and I feel flexible enough to use different language that works for people because I, that, you know, it, it doesn't, fully matter the language to me the language helps hold the container hold the framework but we're all saying the same stuff nicely said yeah yeah but to your question the enneagram you know um i think we all do this we kind of if you get into the enneagram you kind of latch on to certain things and are like this feels really really true this other stuff maybe i don't know you know, it's never going to get it fully right. And then as I kind of followed it deeper, those things also proved to be really accurate and really helpful. I just wasn't ready for them in the beginning. And as I did that, I was like, oh my gosh, like, what is this thing that knows me even before I'm ready to see myself? And it's not to say I'm deferring to the system, but really trying things on and doing that self-observation um, to see where where there might be truth in it. Um, and I encourage people to do that. If they're between a few types, try it on. Where, How might this be true for you? Just are you open to that? And, and then even in all of the numbers, the ultimate work is like, there are types where I'm like, I'm very clearly not dominant in that type. And yet, if I look closely enough at myself, my resistance to being like that type in and of itself is like an amazing place to do some work because I believe I have that in me as well because I see it. And I, I think I have learned to believe it's in everyone. So it's got to be in me. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say right now, I mean, you're literally tapping into one of the principal tenets of existential therapy more than just the philosophy of it. It, it, this idea of paying attention and taking personal responsibility for your own life. You know, you're, you, you, that was very interesting to hear how similar that all is. It's just like, I see things and now I see choices or as Kirk Schneider says, what, what is the freedom within the 
constraints, the non-negotiable constraints that life gives us. And what can I do within? I mean, that was, I don't know if you've ever read Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Oh, yeah. You know, that was kind of his idea, you know, when he was literally looking at a piece of bread going, these fuckers are ending us but while i'm still alive i can choose to share this piece of bread or eat it all myself they can't take away my freedom to choose even if it's just my thoughts yes and so i'm in in the process of training um with this wonderful practitioner and physical therapist uh, marion gilbert in what she calls the somatic enneagram which is about doing this work on a somatic level and really, you know, it's parts work in a lot of ways and it's her core thing is radical inclusion and finding these parts of ourselves. We've kind of, I mean, I, I, I think it's a similar idea to these exiles that they talk about in, in IFS and really learning how to welcome everything. And one thing that she says is, the only freedom we truly have is our conscious placement of attention. And as we place our attention skillfully, we can, there's this whole practice of pendulation kind of where it's like, we can first place our attention on the resource within us and that can regulate our nervous systems enough to, to really recognize even if everything is all out of whack, there's some part of me that feels okay enough or that is a resource for me. And then we can start to shift the attention to the part that's contracted or stuck or in pain. And when we sh- as we shift our attention skillfully between the two, we can do, I think Gabor Mate also has he does a compassionate inquiry practice. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's there's a component of that where we can then be really genuinely curious and compassionate about this contraction and constriction. And then we shift back to the resource if it gets too much. So we're not diving into the, the trauma or the exiled piece because that's dysregulating, but we're using the resource within us to meet the part within us that has been um, locked away and all on its own, we can't make it happen, but all on its own, that part starts to learn how to relax or maybe there's a message or a need or a way that it wants to be met. And it's this incredibly powerful, beautiful experience that all happens because we're shifting our attention in a specific way. And it's fascinating to me. I'm getting, I'm doing my final modules in July and I'm really excited to um i already use it in my work but it really feels like revolutionary to me that is so great and i could i could i could feel your excitement into my headphones it it's 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 so <laughs> present and genuine karen I'm, I'm really happy for you that you found this that means a lot to you and has offered so much clarity and again, this idea that we always talk about, which is deeper degrees of awareness, deepening our understanding of who we are as a ongoing process that only ends when we die, not as a static, 
I'm this. Okay, I've cracked the code. I'm done. It's just yeah. an ongoing thing. You know, what I'm curious about is how does Karen Burley practically help her clients? Like what, how do you show up in a session to facilitate this yeah. sort of thing? Yeah. Um, well, as you might imagine, it's, it's kind of different every time. Of course, right. And, and my practice, you know, is to actually, I have a big practice right now of trust and of kind of in this, I suppose, as part of the spirituality is saying, I trust that whatever needs to happen in this session will happen. And on a practical level, that kind of, ke it keeps my ego at bay. It keeps me from being like, oh my gosh, I have to do so much or else is it worth the session and da, 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 you know, all those fun all the classics, yeah. thoughts. <laughs> Um, and I, then I, that's what I see. And that's what I choose to believe is even if we don't unlock something huge, you know, there are seeds that get planted or there is, there are dots that get connected. And I love, um, Irvin Yalom. I think we've talked about him mm -hmm. and it really is, he is so clear that what, what he thinks is happening in the session is very different than what the clients are, are experiencing in the yes, session. Yes, he's written extensively about that very th dynamic, right? Yeah, and I also, I think I used to be skeptical as this, as I was like a therapist in training. Uh, he also talks about how, how the love is what does the healing. It's it, like he just loves his clients and that's what is the majority of the intervention. So I, I work with those things as kind of like a personal practice of just like trying to like let my clients be exactly as they are, this Rogerian approach, and then trusting that what's happening in the session is what's needed today. So it's very present focused. Um, and then I work with the Enneagram. You know, some people, a lot of people come to me either knowing their type or curious, and I support them in, in finding their likely dominant type. So we then have shared language that I bring in, but that's not the core of the session. That is a tool to kind of offer that dot connection, um, connecting the dots for folks. And the core of the Enneagram, which I haven't even shared with you, William, <laughs> is that the, we, are th we have three centers of intelligence. Um, George Gurdjieff, who kind of brought the symbol forth, and he never put um, types to, he never put psychological types to the Enneagram, but he would teach through like movement and dance and all this other stuff. Um, he talks about how the, the core personality is just an imbalance of our three centers. And our centers are, you know, the head center, which we think about as intelligence, but we also have a cluster of neurons in our chest that make up a little brain that is also known as the heart center in the Enneagram. And then we've got our gut center or our body center or what Gurdjieff called the moving center. And a lot of how I end up working with folks is because it's simple enough to have these three centers. And if you know your type or have a guess, you know, or even I'm not a head type, but I can certainly go into my head as we all are taught to do so often. It's like, oh, great, there is my head center. Where's the heart? And where's the gut? And try and just offering some simple um, invitations back into these other parts of us. And if we know the type, you know, I 
I know kind of how the senders most likely are going to arrange themselves, um, which one tends to get left out, which one tends to need some more support to rebalance the system. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's a lot of kind of mindfulness work. I, I, you know, I draw from all these modalities, but it's also very intuitive. And that's something that I felt was truly missing. And that really actually, I think, got me out of, um, you know, the workplace we were in where I, people were like, just trust yourself, just trust your intuition. And I was like, I can't, I don't know what that is. I don't know how to do that. I don't know where my anchor is, right? Exactly. And that was really what sent me on the journey um, toward, you know, intuition and more meditation. And I went to some shamanic practitioners and I, you know, I kind of started opening to all these things. The Enneagram had, had always been there since, um, since I found it through my therapist, but I came back to it as an anchor for myself. And then when I did my deeper training, I went Go, thinking and expecting to learn more about other people and how I could help them more. And I was working in crisis at the time. I was working like with a lot of different people constantly in kind of shorter form ways. And um, I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll be able to like understand people better, which I did come out of it with that. But more than anything, I came out of it with a deeper understanding of how to ground myself and how my own system operates That's it, right? and how to use that as a foundation of whatever I'm doing with others. Oh, you know, as you say this and you talk about this journey, I'm just reminiscing and thinking back of how difficult it would be when we were sort of newbie therapists working in those agencies in the chaos like the, the, the whole structure of the system we work within is so wild. It's like, okay, you got your diploma. Cool. Here are the most traumatized families in the city. And we're going to give you 55 of them in a 40 hour work week. Okay, go. And, and half of them will speak Spanish to you. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember we had that, that thing in common. We had the Spanish caseload. And, but you and, had, you know, I would say you're actually uh, proficiently fluent in Spanish, and I was, you know, did all right. But it, the, that extra mental toll was, and the cultural differences, is just this whole other layer as well. Absolutely. And there wasn't any real consideration for the fact that you are not a native Spanish speaker, and I am. And you had to navigate something that was so, so difficult. I really felt for you at, at that moment, Karen. That was, that was heavy. But yeah. it may have been, at least in part, one of the catalysts that sent you on this journey of discovery and just really finding oh, yeah. who, who the hell Karen <laughs> is and continues to evolve and be and become. Yeah. And I think, again, as I look back and, um, you know, I think there, and my type in particular has a certain uh, relationship with anger that's important. Um, I don't, I never would have identified myself as angry or, I, you know, in fact, I've been extremely out of touch with any sense of anger most of my life. And learning the Enneagram, I don't know that there was another way I would have been 
uh, offered that language or that sense of like, you actually have to get angry about these systems that put people in, um, in this way that is really potentially extremely harmful. Um, and getting, and I was so used to disconnecting from that and saying, but if I don't show up, they don't get services and I can help and I can try and it's okay, I'll be fine. It, I, I have so much privilege. I, ha I have to do it in this way. And even as I like say that, I can, my voice goes up here and I've lost myself and I'm not in my belly. And to go through, you know, first a deep depression and a real apathy and then finding the anger underneath that of like, what the fuck is happening out there that this is the systems we're in. And then, of, of, of course, you know, we've, the whole political cycle that's been nonstop for a long time now. But at the time, it was like early days of, of the Trump administration. And it was just like, holy shit, why aren't we all angry? <laughs> yeah. And I had had to go through that. And I think that Enneagram supported that so that I can come back to like, what do I want to do with this? And ultimately, you know, I didn't leave the systems of social work after I left that job. I tried a bunch of other things and, you know, kind of repeatedly would get burnt out and um, even ended in a job that really suited me. And I got to do a lot of amazing things. But ultimately, those intensive experiences being like, I actually just can't be in the system. And not only am I, I'm not running away from the system. I actually want to create something and have it be really different and have it feel different and have it support me and support my clients. And I think the coaching world, I was very, very skeptical of. They were like, scale your business to six figures in, yeah, in right, six right. months. And so much of that language. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this seems like people who didn't want to go to grad school and I don't know about this. <laughs> and then like finding mentors who were passionately dedicated to there being a way to really support people and support ourselves and hold uphold integrity in our healing spaces while advocating for justice, while making enough money to like really have spaciousness in our days and lives. And I'm still working on it all. Um, I am not there by any means, but I just got back from a retreat because I allowed myself to go uh, have an experience that also is going to support my business and me as a person. And like in the world of social work, I just, I felt so guilty all the time and so run down. <laughs> so run down. That's such a, yeah. yeah. I really appreciate your, your candor and your honesty and expressing all that. And a lot of that resonates with what a lot of what you said just right now resonates. I, I sometimes feel trapped, yeah. especially taking insurance and feeling trapped in this medical model that just isn't, we're not fucking kneecaps. We're not elbows to be fixed in that way. you know, it, it, but anyway, that we'll have to leave that for another, another episode. Um, but it's tricky, right? Cause also people deserve accessible services and I, I don't right, exactly. Answers, <laughs> exactly. Right. And that's, and that's the tear. Exactly. And that's in part why I'm still in that system that I don't like. And I feel, 
I get screwed by often. But but like you said, right. You know, it's a weird world when you think when I wasn't doing so great in my business, when I would think I can't afford to see me. How weird is that? Totally. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of my journey, too, has been willingness to invest in myself, not because I think I'm going to get a certain outcome, but because I my intuition or my heart is telling me like, you need this thing. Like this is part mm -hmm. of your journey. Mm -hmm. And all my stuff about money, like can, like I can look closer at that and be like, if I'm projecting out for a year doing this every week, maybe I can't afford it. But like, do I have it right now to invest in myself, to have the potential to open to how I'm gonna live my life more deeply and more on purpose? Because if so, that's a different question. Exactly right. And if I'm not willing to do that, then why would I expect my clients to be willing to do that? And obviously, there's a million nuances and circumstantial and evidence, and I never would want anyone to go into debt to work with me at all. Um, and I have the I've learning how to be like, this is how much it costs to for me to put a lot of energy into being in session with you and to and the spaciousness that it allows me to not take insurance and to be outside of whatever you think therapy means. Um, come to me for what you think I can offer you and we'll work together if it feels like the right thing. And so that freedom has been, yeah, I don't get a paycheck every couple of weeks and I don't have insurance in my job and I'm working on building my business up, but it's felt so worth it to me. And that I, even, you know, I started my business almost a year ago. And even two years ago, I was like, well, I'm never, I don't know, I could never open my own business. This could never be my full time thing. I can't do X, Y, and Z. I'm not good with this, that, and the other. And to continue investing in myself and doing my inner practices and like my meditation and workshops that really fuel me, I'm like, wow. I am uh, I am in a really different space now and I'm in a lot more trust and flow and that again is like part of me just is able and willing to believe that that is a good thing and is it will take me wherever I need to go next. Man, what a journey. I uh w w this is this is a bit of a bummer because we're kind of at around the time where I usually I don't know, I don't know how you feel about this as a fellow podcast person. I try to keep these conversations to a certain time frame because people I think often might just tune them out or get bored but um, I'm still feeling curious about something we haven't even gotten into who is Karen outside of this do you have any artistic pursuits you know who are you Karen Oof. well as a podcaster my inner practice is to do whatever the fuck I want. And if people want to stop listening, they're welcome to do that. And that's it's not, great. It's not my responsibility. Um, that's it. Yeah. I'm taking, I'm taking, I'm taking your approach. So <laughs> say what you need to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that is actually harder for me. And um, if anyone knows what a type nine is like, uh, it, it really is hard for me to gather my individuality outside of of my environment and other people. And so a lot of 
you know, this mindset shift of being like, what's good for me is good for my business and what's opening and spacious for me and what's helping me learn myself, learn about myself more is good for my business. I kind of use that as a way to give myself permission to be like, you have to figure out, you have to learn more about yourself all the time. And actually when I, when I quit my job, I was like, okay, Karen, you realize that doing this means you're committing to doing your own work to keep figuring out more about yourself. And there's no going back. Like this is, this is a a step through a a portal here. And, um, and it's still hard because I find that so much of who I am is somebody who loves people and wants to help them love themselves and see their quirkiness and their lovability, even no matter what, they think they've done that's unforgivable or whatever. Um, so I've learned that part of, I don't feel good when I'm not coaching, when I don't have clients or teaching spaces. So that's part of me, but it can't be who all of me. Um, you know, my life, I live with my partner. We're getting married in the fall. Congratulations. I didn't know that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we're like in wedding planning mode, which is not my favorite, but it is uh, good. <laughs> uh-huh. Good inner practice. I'm just like, this is all like the, my practice. There you go. Right. Um, we have a puppy who's almost one. And so I've met your puppy on the uh, on Instagram. That oh. is one adorable little creature. <laughs> oh, she is. She's so cute. And she really is teaching me to play more. I used to spend a lot of time with kids and was maybe better at playing with them. But when it comes to myself, um, I'm like, I don't know how to play with a puppy. <laughs> I've never <laughs> had a puppy before. And really like trying to find moments, like I've been um, doing a little, my friend calls it flow practice, which I do with like either dancing or um, using some watercolors. And I, uh, I, yeah, never have, you know, one of my big stories, one of the big things that has gotten in my way my whole life is being like, I don't think I'm that creative. Like That's my a brother, story you would tell yourself. I'm not that creative. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. From early on. And sure. my, my brother is like, he always drew and wrote. Oh, and he, so he, he took, is he older than you? Yeah. So he took that role and then it was oh, yeah. not a, not as available to you. If you want to look at that more orthodox birth <laughs> order sort of theory. Yeah, totally. He, he really was that in our whole family. I think the, you know, um, So I was like, well, I can't draw like him or I don't have these ideas or I don't know, I don't know. And this confusion was just always there. And this, um, which I now know, you know, through my Enneagram type is like ways that I hide myself is by saying I don't know or assuming I'm not certain ways. And so my my, my practice now is like just doing something like moving my body um, painting, putting some colors on a page, not hiding. I, yeah. Not hiding anymore. Yeah. And the, there's a real fear of like, what if there's nothing interesting in here? And what if I put paint on a paper and I hate it and it's like, okay, yeah, why don't I do it? And then see what happens. This assumption that I won't be able to handle new information about myself is a problem. So I've worked with that a lot of like, 
um, being trying to be silly more and watch bad TV and not have to always be this like like mystical loving being all the time because I don't really think that's the only thing being a human is about it's like getting in touch with like these base desires and like listening to like horrible music that is like you know (laughs) I don't love the lyrics but like it makes my body move in a certain way and naming what I want and what I desire and like noticing that I grasp for things and that I want control sometimes and I want to like like pay a lot of money for some program that I may or may not finish or something there's like an aliveness that I try to experience more often now and uh yeah, I'm also, tr- I try to read more. I'm, I'm, I'm also like very addicted to technology. I grew up with it pretty much. And I think I, that helps me hide who I am. So in my process of learning who I am, it's like being, just like spending more time with myself, being with myself. I'm actually in the middle of writing a newsletter about, I'm extremely extroverted. <laughs> I grew up in a big family. And you I, are or you are not? I, I been, are. I am. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I are. <laughs> uh-huh. and the, when the pen, I, I went from working in this open office layout, coordinating 120 people, talking all the time, where I would actually come home from work being like, oh, I think my social needs have been fulfilled finally after... <laughs> my whole life and the pandemic hit and overnight it's like I'm alone in this one bedroom apartment five feet from my partner sitting on my computer all my volunteers are gone like all the like that whole thing just went away it just went away and fortunately I was engaged in my work I had just come back in February of 2020 from this big training where I opened up a lot and I was like okay it's time to be with myself like I, I get it and I wasn't angry about it. I was able to be like, I mean, it was hard. It was really hard. But I was like, oh, this is this is a kick in my head. I felt like you're you you're going to be alone a lot, um, and you're going to have to feel all the things that come with that. And so I still feel. I mean, we're two years into this pandemic, and I am, you know, fortunately seeing some people sometimes but it's still a lot of time alone and it's still really hard to be like who am I alone by myself and can I love that person and can that person just want to dance or want a snack or want a walk or want to scroll on Instagram for a while and can all of that be okay and part of who I am so I don't know if that answers your question it it no it, it does I mean it's it it, you you can't answer it incorrectly. I'm just I'm just struck. You know, I always think about us. I think about a, a lot about evolutionary theory and how you know we shouldn't forget how and why we evolved and why we're built the way we are. And we are a mammal, and mammals like to fuck around. I mean, they do. Look at look at little you know cubs, little tigers, little lions, little dogs, cats. We need to play, but then we also have this big ass frontal cortex that allows us to contemplate our death and to worry about bills. So how do we navigate this innate need for goofing off 
with the capacity that as humans we have to feel guilt and worry and anxiety, you know, and giving yeah. and giving ourselves permission to say, yeah, man, I'm going to fuck around. Totally. And it's, and for me, like, so I'm a, I'm a body type who's out of touch with their own body. That's kind of the, the gist of the, the nine. And so actually, you know, my partner and I have been rock climbing a lot the last few years. And as when the gyms opened up again, or when it was nice out, we would go outside, but this real visceral sense of like, there's, there's some days there's a ton of fear. I'm like, why am I off the ground? What, what, like, why am, am I, I off the ground? <laughs> like when you're climbing, you literally yeah. have that. <laughs> well, you know, just your body is sure, like, what if yeah. I fall? Yeah, right. Why am I, why am I screwing around with gravity? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh my gosh, my whole weight is on my like tiny little fingers. And, and then you get to the top and like the whole point is to let go. And we've got these safety systems in place. I'm harnessed in, I do top roping and that will show me right where I'm at. Because some days I trust and some days I don't. Some days I feel strong and some days I don't. Some days it feels fun and silly to just like climb up a wall. And other days it feels like the most serious thing in the world. <clears throat> and having something that's kind of goal oriented, but it's also really personal and individual. And I have this amazing supportive partner who like doesn't care if I do a thing all the way through and, but also pushes me when I, want to give up too soon and it's like this really amazing balance where he really sees me and he knows how tired I am and my levels and and is encouraging and it's like oh yeah this is amazing to actually be in my body because otherwise I'm like sitting at a screen in my head all day long and I forget the impact it has on my emotional being and my physical being so a lot of my stuff I'm like oh yeah I am a person I need to like stretch you're like i need to like go outside every day like, that's right even if it's raining <laughs> yeah yeah and sometimes yeah. it's a tall order for us with with modern life being what it is right. absolutely Fortunately, i have a puppy so she reminds me of... and a beautiful one i'll say it, i'll <laughs> say it again <laughs> i remember i was you had posted a picture um i think we follow each other on instagram and the picture of your dog came up and i called my partner or i said look at this fucking dog oh my god <laughs> yeah she's yeah. she's perfect i mean she it is interesting too even with her in that relationship where i'm like sometimes i'm like oh why are you whining i'm just like just need to close my door and be on my computer and other times it's like all right you're a puppy you just want to play you want to chase right. the ball you just yeah. want me to sit next to you while you chew on your toy yeah yeah and to be reminded of of those things actually does i think help with the brain stuff because our minds are amazing yes but, you know that what do they say uh terrible master good a good servant, but a terrible master. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't remember how that goes, but I, yeah. I don't know how we, I feel about that language. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's true too. Yeah. But like, and I don't think we, we need to control our mind. Like I actually love the Enneagram because it's not just about mindset. The actual thing is like, you're, you need your body to be grounded and your heart to be relatively receptive before you can even really get to your thoughts. And yet we're here pouring information into our minds and feeling responsible for everything and knowing everything and doing all the things and everything feels like overwhelming and unsafe. And it, it is for so many people. So there's like, there's something there, but for it to take over 
uh, doesn't lead to a lot of action. Um, so to remind myself that play and rest and giggling and like just texting a friend or doing a podcast like this or connecting with people is also going to ground me enough so that like when I have to make a decision or when it's like, okay, what is in my bank account and how much can I offer to causes that I really care about that I'm not, I'm not actively doing that work, but I can support it. Um, or like, what do I believe about? Like, what messages do I want to put out there? What, what content do I want to create? Like, it's hard when I'm not grounded. So seeing that as like equally, if not more important than, than all the mental activity. That's what I'm up to these days is a lot of, a lot of thinking about how much less I should be thinking or it could be <laughs> uh-huh. a lot of supporting my clients to like take action steps toward that. And then hearing myself and being like, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> exactly. It's funny that you brought up Irvialum because um, I mean, for, for any therapist that, you know, listen to this with any regularity, I can't stress enough reading in fact, reading it over and over, like once a year, maybe, The Gift of Therapy from Irvi Alam. And one of his chapters is taking your clients higher than you've been. Is it doable? You know, because sometimes it's just like, I, I have felt it where it's just like, I'm working you go somewhere that I haven't gone to yet, that I'm still struggling with. Totally. Well, I think one of my teachers says like, um, don't trust a teacher who's not doing their practices or like doing their own work. But at the same time, everybody's got like their unique stuff going on. And if I trust, if I'm doing my own work and enough and I trust them to take whatever we're doing together and apply it in their brilliant way that might be far beyond my brilliance and in, in their domain, that's still extremely valuable. Um, I don't have to have done what they do, but I do have to be able to be with them fully, which means I have to be attending to myself. I have to be with myself enough to, to hold space for them. So it's this, again, kind of like a paradox where, um, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, I don't want to work with someone if they're not exactly like me, but then I'm like, wait, they could offer me something that's so different. And when those people who've done a whole lot trust me to do what I'm going to do, it feels so good. And there's just no need to compare. And I, I think back to the Enneagram, like when we say, oh, we're coming from really different places. We have really different brilliances. Like we've got different skills and um, innate capacities. Of course, I shouldn't be doing what you're doing. I should be doing what I'm here to do. And the more I'm doing what I'm here to do, I believe that allows, not that people need permission, but sometimes they do, or support or whatever to do what they're here to do. That's it. You nailed it. I mean, and notice how many times I've said it since we've been talking. And to me, it always comes down to this one foundational feature, deepening our awareness. And that's exactly what you just described. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful work. And I think like, we certainly have to deal with the structures of society that we're all in as well. But the, the more those non-negotiable constraints, right? That's right. And 
and we have to make the money and we have to find the people to work with like it's not all you know flowers and rainbows but it can be so delightful to feel like you're you know I've been reading this book um, by Stephen Cope called The Great Work of Your Life and it's about dharma you know he's kind of from a yogic perspective and um and he says sometimes you can you know an inch off of your dharma feels like a mile but when you're when you're on it like or when you're on your when you're on purpose it's just um it's just delightful and so i think that's like what i aspire to do with my clients is to help them see that they can have a life that really works for them that works for their nervous system, that works for their head, their heart, and their gut, and that the world really needs from them. So it is like both both a beautiful privilege to get to do that search and a responsibility, I feel, for, for many of us to, to really look within and see what we can bring forth or else the world doesn't get to experience it. Karen, I cannot think of a better way to end than what you just said there. How can people find you if they want to work with you? Where should they go or what should they do? Yeah, my website is karenburley.com and there's there should be all the links you need there. I'm I'm kind of constantly fiddling with my website, so It looks phenomenal um, by the way. That's a top-notch website. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'll be I'll be working on more ways to work with me. Right now, I'm mostly doing um, private coaching. So I do Enneagram uh, type discovery sessions. So either if you're brand new and you're like, what is this thing? Uh, we could do that. Or I do clarification sessions if you are either between a couple types or just want to know, like, how could this actually apply to my life? Or like, what does knowing this really mean? Um, I do that. And then I do like it more in depth. Uh, deep coaching sessions with folks and I'm hopefully going to be having some sort of group program in the in the future wonderful Karen, oh, and my podcast That's please great. tell us about your podcast <laughs> my podcast is called the Enneagram Typecast so you can get to it from my website or enneagramtypecast.com we post um, quotes from the episodes on Instagram at, at Enneagram Typecast and I'm at Karen Burley. So I would love if you're into existential therapy or you like William, um, I would love to connect with you. <laughs> Wonderful. So Karen Burley is your Instagram. And then yeah. from there, you could also find the podcast. And also, I, I know it links off of your website too, karenburley.com. Yeah, I'm trying to be easy to find. So I'm sure I you'll link you, me in the show I, notes. Too. I think you succeeded. Yes. Unless I forget, unless I don't, I don't hope I don't get too space cadet. No, I'll link you on the show notes. I promise. <laughs> yeah. And I love, I mean, I think this is such relational work and I, I, uh, I mean, I, I'm trying to not reject the whole idea of marketing. Cause I think there are ways of doing it that, that work well, but mostly I just like building relationships with people. And so even if I never work with people, I am so interested in, in, being connected with folks who are into this kind of thing. Absolutely. Really, really quick here. I'm going to put in a plug in case you're interested, but I'll put his name out there because he has been so helpful to me. A guy named Seth Godin, G-O-D-I-N. He has been writing a blog. I think he's at about 7,000 entries without a day off. So he's got one of the most popular blogs in the world, literally, 
and he his last book is called The Practice. And he talks, he's, he's in the marketing hall of fame, but you know, he's into the whole ethical marketing movement. And, you know, he talks about it from a very different perspective than just, you know, sell people shit. Uh, I love it. I also love, do you know, Annie Schusler, the rebel therapist? I don't. I think you'd like her a lot. I do like rebels. Yeah. She helps, um, therapists build businesses outside of their therapy practice. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely gonna look into that. What's her name? Uh Annie Schusler. I think it's I don't know that well, I'll be Rebel, able to spell it. That's okay. Rebel therapist will Rebel get me therapist. there. Rebel therapist Annie should be enough. Thanks, Google. Uh, <laughs> it's it's great. I mean I, I am as I'm carving my way into this this world or finding my own way, finding the people who are doing things in a way that is grounded, practical, but also really you, you know, supportive to like who we all are as people. Totally. That's um, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I love, I love that you're doing this. I love talking to you. This is so Likewise. Wonderful. It has been a great treat. Perhaps of all the episodes I've done so far, this has been the one where I have felt excited to be a student more than any of the other ones. Cause a lot of the folks I've talked with, you know, have a, a more similar therapeutic alignment or they're, you know, artists where we share the taste in the same bands or whatever. But, but this one, I came in as like, I'm just going to learn from Karen, man. I'm just going to let go of whatever questions and just let her let her run it. So uh, thank you so much for, for doing what you did. And I hope it helps uh, turn people on to this to this new thing that might be for some if it's meaningful to them. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, hearing from you in a few months when the Enneagram uh, really piques your interest and you, you want to discover your type. <laughs> and, I, and I reconfigure my whole career. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. the beautiful thing yeah. is you can just incorporate it. It's already, I mean, I love you're so in, intuitively in tune with these things. And that's what I love about it, too. And your questions are great. Thank you so much. Oh, for thank your you. Thank you for saying that, Karen. Um Cool. Well, we could love fest for a long time, but that's true. We'll let the list. We'll <laughs> that's true. Stop, stop holding the listeners hostage. They're right. They're like, stop talking. <laughs> Karen, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for, for doing this. And, uh, I hope, uh, I hope we get to talk soon again. All right. Thanks. Take care. <laughs>